Well, greetings to all our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world, and welcome to all our guests that are here today. We have 215 in attendance, and thank you very much, Mrs. Ames and Mr. McCullough, for that beautiful violin solo, and uh, I like romance, and that's just a beautiful number. Thank you very much for that. We thank God for his word going into all the world with the new stations we've added more recently. God's church is dedicated to preaching the gospel through the powerful doors that he's given us. Dr. Douglas Winnell, in his sermon last week on the purpose of prophecy, gave us some perspectives from international authors. Uh, He loaned me those books, and I've been reading parts of them, and just very shocking. And again, to find out what we already know is happening in the world. He shared uh, one of the books, The Abolition of Britain, and by uh, Peter Hitchens, and another one, The Death of Christian Britain by Callum G. Brown, which mentions, but the culture of Christianity has gone in the Britain of the new millennium. Britain as is showing the world how religion, as we know it, can die. And so what we see around the world is not the growing of biblical morality, but just the opposite, the decline and the decadence of morality and society. Dr. Winnale also referred to suicide of a superpower. Will America survive till 2025 by Patrick Buchanan? Will America survive until 2025? That's only 11 years from now. He gives this perspective on page 428, the very last paragraph of his book. Quote, America is entering a time of troubles. The clashes of culture and creed are intensifying, and both parties are perceived to have failed the nation. Republicans were repudiated in 2004 and 2008, Democrats in 2010. And the crises that afflict us, culture wars, race division, record deficits, unpayable debts, waves of immigration, legal and illegal, of peoples never before assimilated, gridlock in the capital, and possible defeat in war, may prove too much for our democracy to cope with. They surely will if we do not act now. We realize that we are in the decline, and God is giving us the power to warn the nations. Proverbs 14.34 gives us commentary on nations. Proverbs Proverbs 14, verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation. We had a certain degree of biblical morality and the Western nations for many years, but we do not now. But sin is a reproach to any people. That's Proverbs 14, verse 34. But why do nations sin? Mr. Herbert Armstrong visited world leaders and explained the cause of human ills and the solution to those problems. After his death on January 16, 1986, headquarters in Pasadena produced a television retrospective. It shared some of his visits to prime ministers and presidents and speaking to public groups. I caught this one quote that I thought was very telling, as he was telling to some of these world leaders, quote, we do not have world peace, and we will not have world peace until... Human nature is changed, end of quote. 
We do not have world peace, and we will not have world peace until human nature is changed. Is there any place in the world where human nature is now being changed? What is human nature? How can it be changed? As we prepare for the Passover on April 13, 2014, let's ask the question, what is the state of your human nature? Are you replacing your human nature with God's divine nature? Are you cooperating with God and Jesus Christ as they create in you his righteous, perfect character and transforming your human nature? Are you overcoming your human nature? The title of the sermon today is Overcoming Human Nature. First of all, let's ask, what is human nature? I gave a telecast back in 2002 titled, Is Human Nature Good? And I went on our website, tomorrowsworld.org, just to see if it's still available. And uh, as you go on the main web page of tomorrowsworld.org, in the search field in the upper right-hand corner, type in, Is Human Nature Good? And you'll find the telecast, actually other articles, and a whole list of resources. But you'll find the telecast. You'll click on it, and here is this 2002 Telecast. I'll just read to you the introductory statements from that telecast. Many believe that human beings are continually evolving as more intelligent and wise creatures. Is that true? What is our record in loving one another? Will science, religion, human nature, or a combination solve the world's problems? What is the truth about the future of human nature? And do you really know yourself? and your own human nature, you need to know. Well, the question for today, questions are, can you describe your human nature? And how would you describe your human nature? Would you say, as uh, is the common expression, and it's not sinful, we understand what people are saying, it's just uh, the current in-house language, I'm good, how are you today? I'm good. But... uh, What did Jesus say? Let's turn to Matthew, the 19th chapter, Matthew 19. Matthew 19, and uh, start here in uh, verse 6, let's say, Matthew 19, start with verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to them, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he gave several of the Ten Commandments. So are you good? You say, I am good. You might have a problem with self-righteousness. I'm not saying, I'm not casting aspersions on our teenagers. They're using custom in-house language right now. But if you really feel you are good you may have a problem with self-righteousness. Let's turn to Isaiah, the 64th chapter. Again, we're asking, what is human nature and how does it manifest itself? Isaiah 64 and verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. 
We all fade as a leaf, and all our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. And we ask God to create in us his character. The next verse, but now, O eternal, you are our father, we are the clay, and you our potter. And all we are the work of your hand. So we ask God to create in us his perfect character. By the way, we do have a couple sermons on uh, self-righteousness. Mr. Rod King's uh, sermon, number 405, titled Self-Righteousness. And uh, sermon number 683, Seek God's Righteousness. So again, how would you describe your human nature? How do social scientists describe human nature? Edward O. Wilson of Harvard University has written a book, The Social Conquest of the Earth. There was a review of it in Smithsonian Magazine, April 2012, by Natalie Angier. And she gives this overview of his philosophy. Quote, for his part, Wilson cultivates a beautifully appointed gloom. We have created a Star Wars civilization, writes Wilson, with Stone Age emotions. We have created a Star Wars civilization with Stone Age emotions. I might just interject here that we do have a sermon titled Character and Your Emotions. And if you've not heard that, I recommend that you do. Sermon number 720, Character and Your Emotions. Wilson says, quote, We thrash about and are a danger to ourselves and the rest of life, end of quote. Our conquest of earth, and this is back to uh, Angier's comments about his book, our conquest of earth has happened so quickly that the rest of the biosphere has not had time to adjust, and our heedless destruction of species shows scant signs of abating. We are destroying the earth. I won't turn there, but I'll just mention Revelation 11, verse 18, where he says, You should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So God warns those who are polluting and defiling the earth that he's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. Continuing with the Smithsonian article, Angier writes about others who comment on human nature. Quote, still others have adopted a remarkably sunny view of humanity and its prospects. The social scientist Steven Pinker, also of Harvard, argues in his recent book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, that war and violent conflict have been declining steadily and may soon be obsolete. Is that person facing reality, that war is going to be soon obsolete? We know there's an Armageddon and a World War III coming, and that is going to happen. Continuing with uh, Pinker's approach here, that violent conflict have been steadily and may soon be obsolete. Like Wilson, Pinker believes that evolutionary forces have shaped human nature into a complex amalgam of the bestial and heroic, the compassionate and pitiless, although in Pinker's view those forces do not include group selection. Yet Pinker argues that even while we retain our base and bloody impulses, 
historical trends such as stronger governments, increased prosperity, literacy, education, trade, and the empowerment of women have allowed us to effectively tame them. Oh, really? That's why Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, that unless those days are short, no flesh would be saved. There's going to be great tribulation because of human nature. So God has created us in his image. He's given us mind power with creative imagination. We know that the human spirit gives us that mind power. As the Apostle Paul wrote, you might turn there in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11, as we examine who we are, our potential, and our human nature. 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, verse 11. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? No, scientists don't really understand who and what human beings are. God created animals with brains and with instincts, but those physical animals do not have a human spirit. They do not have the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So God gives us his spirit to understand. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, which is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So how else does the world view human nature? We understand how God has given us incredible potential. Science has been finding out more about the human brain and the human mind more recently. This is from the New Yorker magazine, January 17, 2011, What the Science of Human Nature Can Teach Us, by David Brooks. Quote, We are living in the middle of a revolution in consciousness. Over the past few decades, geneticists, neuroscientists, psychologists, sociologists, economists, economists, and others have made great strides in understanding the inner working of the human mind. They sure don't understand human nature the way God has revealed it to us. Let's go on about the human mind. Far from being dryly materialistic, their work illuminates the rich underwater world where character is formed and wisdom grows. They are giving us a better grasp of emotions, intuitions, biases, longings, predispositions, character traits, and social bonding, precisely those things about which our culture has least to say. Brain science helps fill the hole left by the atrophy of theology and philosophy. The atrophy of theology and philosophy. Well, there certainly is atrophy in certain theology and certain philosophy. But here's an interesting comment on the brain. We have a hundred billion neurons in the brain. Infants create as many as 1.8 million neural connections per second. Infants create as many as 1.8 million neural connections per second. A mere 60 neurons are capable of making 10 to the 81st possible connections, which is a number 10 times as large as the number of particles in the observable universe. The ability to distinguish between a P, as in Papa, and B, as in Bill or Bob, 
The ability to distinguish between a P and a B sound involves as many as 22 sights across the brain. Even something as simple as seeing a color in a painting involves a mind-boggling complex set of mental constructions. So God has given us incredible potential. We've had sermons on the mind and on the brain and how we need to make sure that we are using the gifts that God has given us to his honor and to his glory. Again, what is human nature? Over the years, God's church has described human nature as vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed. And I would add the word selfishness to that as well. So have you ever identified any of those traits in your nature? You might say, no, I've never had any of those traits. I hope you've not said that. Perhaps you're better than the Apostle Paul. How did he describe his nature? Turn to Romans, the seventh chapter. Romans, the seventh chapter. And actually, some of the commentaries can't understand Paul's problem because they're saying, well, once saved, always saved. How can Paul, if he were saved, have these problems with his human nature? Romans, the seventh chapter, and verse 14. For we know that this law is spiritual, but I am carnal, meaning fleshly, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will do, that I do not practice. That's what he wanted to do, which was right. He says, I don't do. But what I hate, that I do. This is a problem with my nature, he's saying. If then I do what I will not do, I agree with the law that it is good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells much good. No, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice." So he's saying here he has a problem. Verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inner man. So he sees this other law in his members, warring against the law of his mind and bringing him into the captivity of the law of sin, which is in his members. O wretched man that I am. Have you ever said that? Oh, wretched woman that I am. Perhaps you haven't really seen your human nature unless you have mouthed those words or similar words. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? So we find the solution to the problem of human nature in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind... I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So I thank God. In other words, it shall be through Jesus Christ our Lord that I shall be saved and I will be, I will overcome. Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote an article in 1976 titled Human Nature. Did God create it? He describes how Satan, the devil, affects our attitudes and our nature. Quote, 
This great and powerful being, even though evil, has power literally to surcharge the air around the earth. He broadcasts. Wherever you are as you read these words, chances are there are voices or perhaps music in the air around you. A radio or television set tuned to the right wavelength would make them available to you. The spirit in every human being is automatically tuned in on Satan's wavelength. You don't hear anything because he does not broadcast in words nor in sounds, whether music or otherwise. He broadcasts in attitudes. He broadcasts in attitudes of self-centeredness, lust, greed, jealousy, vanity, envy, resentment, competition, strife, bitterness, and hate. In a word, the selfishness, hostility, deceitfulness, wickedness, rebellion, etc., that we call human nature is actually Satan's nature. It is Satan's attitude. And broadcasting it, surcharging the air with it, Satan actually now works in the unsuspecting over the world today. That is how Satan deceives the whole world today, Revelation 12:9, Revelation 20, verse 3. Being invisible, Satan is not seen by people. This prince of the power of the air, this god of this world, is the real source of what we have come to call human nature. Then a quotable quote, Here is the cause, the real cause, of all the world's evils. Here is the real cause of all the world's evils. So, brethren, we know that we have to battle and overcome Satan the devil. And Dr. Wernell's sermon on uh, gave us the spiritual ammunition Despite those spiritual battles and his sermons, the battle for your mind and how to win spiritual battles. Here is the real cause of all the world's evils, Mr. Armstrong wrote. Let's turn to 1 John, the second chapter. 1 John 2. We know that we must overcome human nature. We must overcome the influence of society, and we must overcome Satan. First John, the second chapter, verse 14. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Again, how do we overcome Satan? How do we overcome human nature? How do we overcome the influences of the world? The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. You are strong. They weren't maybe physically strong, but they're spiritually strong. We must internalize God's word. So as Mr. Armstrong wrote, human nature is reflected in the attitudes of self-centeredness, Lust, greed, jealousy, envy, resentment, competition, strife, bitterness, and hate. The Apostle Paul went on. Let's turn back to uh, Romans, the seventh chapter. Romans, the seventh chapter. And see a little more about Paul's description of human nature and the battle that he was fighting. He said in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord who is going to deliver me from this body of the death. But look back at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. 
But what is the difference between carnal nature and carnal mindedness? Because you just look across the page, perhaps in your Bible, Romans 8 and verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So was Paul saying that he had carnal mindedness? No. He was having fleshly nature, carnal nature, but not carnal mindedness. There is a difference. Why? Because carnal mindedness is hostile against God. In fact, the NIV states it this way, Romans 8, 7. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So we better not have a hostile or a carnal mind. What kind of a mind do we need? Well, we need a converted mind, of course. How else can we describe human nature? Turn back to Galatians, the fifth chapter, and here we find the dramatic contrast between human nature and God's nature, between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians, the fifth chapter, and starting in verse 19. But if you are led by the, by the Spirit, you are not under the law or the penalty of the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are, this is describing human nature, the works of the flesh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And again, we may sin in some of those ways, but we should not practice any of those works of the flesh that are listed there. And if you have a problem with that, then you need to again counsel with one of our ministers and ask for help. The contrast, of course, is the godly nature described in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such there is no law. So if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit, he says in verse 25. So we see how human nature is described even in God's Word. Human nature manifests itself in many different ways. Another way that it manifests itself is in selfishness, laziness, Proverbs 18.9, I won't turn there, I'll just quote it to you. He also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. So you don't want to be manifesting that aspect of human nature. This is the May 20th, 2013 issue of Time Magazine. The me, me, me generation. Millennials are lazy. We just read about the slothful in, or referred to it in Proverbs 18.9. Millennials are lazy, entitled narcissists 
who still live with their parents. And then a summary, why they'll, they will save us all. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. I'm glad to know that the, the millennials are going to save us all. That's uh, the conclusion of this particular article. But let me share with you some of these uh, studies that have been done. Well, for, before I do that, let me just let you know what millennials are. Uh, they have a, on the middle page, they've got the listing of all the various generations. The missionary generation was born 1860 to 1882. The lost generation, 1883 to 1900. The greatest generation, 1901 to 1904, that is, they were born in those areas. That was coined by Tom Brokaw in The Greatest Generation, published in 1998. The silent generation was born 1925 to 1942, so I'm from that generation. Baby boomers, uh, born 1943 to 1960. Generation X, 1961 to 1980. And the millennials, 1980 to the year 2000. Let me read this. It's just fascinating. I am about to do what old people have done throughout history. Call those younger than me lazy, entitled, selfish, and shallow. But I have studies. I have statistics. I have quotes from respective academics. Unlike my parents, my grandparents, and my great-grandparents, I have proof, writes the author. Here's the cold, hard data. The incidence of narcissistic personality disorder is nearly three times as high for people in their 20s as for the generation that's now 65 or older. Three times as high. Narcissistic personality disorder. I'll get back to that in a minute. According to the National Institutes of Health, 58% more college students scored higher on a narcissism scale in 2009 than in 1982. Millennials got so many participation trophies growing up that a recent study showed that 40% believe that they should be promoted every two years regardless of performance. That's the self-esteem movement, of course. Well, what is this uh, narcissism? Narcissistic personality disorder, and this is from the Mayo Clinic staff, and you can go to mayoclinic.org for this Analysis, And we're examining ourselves for the feast and the days of unleavened bread. Is it possible that any of you have this particular aspect of human nature, of vanity and egotism? This is the definition of narcissistic personality disorder from the Mayo Clinic. Narcissistic personality disorder is a mental disorder in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance and deep need for admiration. Those with narcissistic personality disorder believe that they're superior to others and have little regard for other people's feelings. But behind this mask of ultra-confidence lies a fragile self-esteem vulnerable to the slightest criticism. Narcissistic personality disorder is one of several types of personality disorders. Personality disorders are conditions in which people have traits that cause them to feel and behave in socially distressing ways, limiting their ability to function in relationships and in other areas of their life, such as work or school. 
Now, Dr. Meredith's sermon two weeks ago would solve this problem of narcissistic personality disorder. He gave a sermon titled, Fear God, a very powerful sermon. It's a must-play. He encouraged us all to examine ourselves for the Passover. He quoted 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Know you not your own selves, whether Jesus Christ is in you. Well, we are not disqualified. We are not disqualified. So eight weeks from tomorrow night, we will be keeping the Passover, the New Testament Passover. That's only for baptized members. But teenagers and children can still examine themselves for the Passover season. I would encourage you to go to mayoclinic.org and see if you have any of these symptoms. In contrast, people who have healthy confidence and self-esteem don't value themselves, writes Mayo Clinic, more than others. As Dr. Meredith once wrote in a co-worker letter, every human soul on earth is precious in God's sight. When I see a beggar on the street, I don't think of myself being of more value than he is. Our value comes from the fact that Christ gave his life for us and shed his blood. That's where our value comes from. So I would encourage all of you to take the narcissistic personality quiz. Uh, Just go on Google and put in narcissistic personality quiz. I took the quiz and uh, found it very interesting. There are seven different aspects of narcissism. Well, where did narcissism come from? Well, that uh, was from Greek mythology. Uh, the uh, god Narcissus uh, apparently looked in, saw a reflection of himself in a river. Apparently didn't have, those gods didn't have mirrors, but saw a reflection of himself and loved himself. And so that's where narcissism comes from. The love of self. Let's turn to 2 Timothy, the uh, third chapter, 2 Timothy 3. We're discussing various aspects of human nature, and perhaps you might discover something in yourself that you hadn't thought of before. 2 Timothy, the third chapter. And notice here is kind of an aspect of uh, narcissism in the very first aspect that the Apostle Paul mentions. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. For know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be narcissistic, lovers of themselves, egotistical, vain, self-centered, lovers of themselves, lovers of money, so much greed, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Again, we have to make sure that we recognize any of our human nature and attack it and overcome it, repudiate it, repent of it, and change. Mr. Armstrong, in his autobiography, talks about discovering his human nature and how he had to change. He recognized he needed to change from his human nature. This is chapter one, chapter 21, the million dollar clay business, uh, the last three paragraphs in the autobiography of Herbert W. Armstrong, volume one, page 389. 
Quote, and so the year 1929 had come and gone. 1930 was to be another of the lean years, as indeed were several others to follow. We were at rock bottom financially. We had learned what it is to go hungry. But these were nevertheless years of spiritual growth. These were the years in which Jesus Christ, the living head of the church, was instructing me in his word, preparing me for his ministry, humbling me, rooting out the self-confidence, the cocky conceit, the vanity, and egotism. But he was replacing these self-trusting attributes with reliance and dependence on God. Instead of self-confidence, he was giving me painful but valuable lessons in faith. He was granting us a few miraculous answers to prayer. Some far more astonishing answers to prayer were to follow in the year 1930, and that follows the next chapter, chapter 22, Astounding Answers to Prayer. So recognizing our own human nature is extremely important. Mr. Armstrong recognized what God was doing in humbling him, replacing self-confidence with godly faith. Narcissists admire themselves, and sometimes it takes tragedy or trials to teach us lessons. Remember what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. We turn back to uh, Daniel, the fourth chapter. Daniel, the fourth chapter. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that he ate grass for seven years. Daniel, the fourth chapter. Try a little of this wonderful tea. Daniel 4, verse 29. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Again, you know, we can take pleasure and have gratitude in the accomplishments that God gives us. But what does it say in 1 Corinthians 1? He that glories, let him glory in the Lord. In other words, we give God the credit for our successes. Yes, we apply the seven laws of success. And we see the cause and effect, and God blesses those efforts because the seventh law of success is seek continuous contact with God. Verse 31 of Daniel 4, While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, or seven years, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And so that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. Later on, Daniel spoke to his descendant, King Belshazzar, chapter 5, verse 22. And this, of course, was the handwriting on the wall incident. Daniel 5, verse 22, But you, his son, Belshazzar, Daniel tells him, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. He had described what had happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. 
Belshazzar had not learned the lessons of history. And we can learn from God's way of life, from God's word, from all of the experiences that are in the Bible. You all shall learn from our own past experiences not to repeat the same mistakes. Remember what Mr. Herbert Armstrong said. My friends, human nature has not changed. Nations have not learned the lessons of history. In 1945, oh, this is my quote, not his. Okay, now, This is from a Tomorrow's World telecast that I did. My friends, human nature has not changed. Nations have not learned the lessons of history. In 1945, two atomic bombs ended the war in Japan. So we've had an article in Tomorrow's World magazine titled Lessons of History. We've had sermons, learning lessons, prophecy and history, learning the lessons, lessons from fasting. These are titles of sermons. Lasting lessons from suffering. And number 677, lessons from America's apostasy. Remember what Mr. Armstrong said about his human nature. He learned from the suffering that he experienced. These are the years in which Jesus Christ, the living head of the church, was instructing me in his word, preparing me for his ministry, humbling me, rooting out the self-confidence, the cocky conceit, the vanity and egotism. But he was replacing the self-trusting attributes. And we need to think about what has been replaced in me. Has faith replaced self-confidence? But he was replacing these self-trusting attributes with reliance and dependence on God. Instead of self-confidence, he was giving me but painful but valuable lessons in faith. So are we making those kinds of changes in our life? How can we overcome human nature? We've already seen from Paul's experience how he trusted that Christ would help him to overcome his human nature. Here's another perspective on human nature. And this is from the incredible human potential. I don't know. Let me just see. How many of you have a copy of Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong's book, The Incredible Human Potential? Let's see your hands. Oh, quite a few. I'm surprised. Very good. That was about 70% of you. Very good. The Incredible Human Potential, pages 162 and 163. Chapter 11, Human Nature and How Our Whole World is Deceived About Its Origin. We humans, quoting from the book, we humans start out at birth all right. We begin our human life with neither the human nature from Satan nor the divine nature which may be imparted only by the Holy Spirit. But soon we begin to absorb and acquire the selfish, self-centered attitude broadcast by Satan. But Satan, Satan's kingdom of angels, now turned to demons, rejected the government of God and it was thus removed from the earth. God's purpose in having created and put humans on the earth was to develop in them God's own holy and righteous character. That's why you're living. That's why I'm here. You ask God, create in me a clean heart, O God. 
and renew a steadfast or a right spirit within me. That's Psalm 51, verse 10. God wants all people, Mr. Armstrong writes, who will reject and overcome Satan's way of life and turn to the government of God, which is God's way of life. That government of God exists at this time on earth only through, through those that are being led by God's Spirit within the church of God. Satan is angry. He hates it. He subtly tries to inject into the minds under that government of love a hostility that misrepresents it as a harsh and cruel government of Satan. But I repeat, Lucifer was created by God, perfect in all his ways, until iniquity was found in him. He acquired the nature of rebellion and evil by false reasoning. Adam acquired it from Satan. The Ephesians, Ephesians 2.1, acquired it from Satan. As has all humanity except Jesus Christ. But now, in Christ, through his grace, Mr. Armstrong writes, we may acquire the divine nature of God. Where is that in the Bible? You turn there to Second Peter, the first chapter. But now in Christ, he writes, through his grace. And what's the last verse of the Bible? How many of you can quote at least part of the last verse in the Bible? Let's see your hands. Okay. One, two, three, four. Okay, about uh, 21 out of 215. So, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You want that grace. I want that grace. And as Mr. Armstrong wrote, we can, by Christ's grace, change, quote, human nature, end of quote, and eradicate it entirely from us replacing it with a divine nature. That ends chapter 11 of the incredible human potential, human nature, and how our whole world is deceived about its origin. So here in Second Peter 1, we have this wonderful promise from God. And Peter again starts with the word grace in verse 2. Second Peter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So we rejoice that we've been forgiven of our past sins, and now we're walking in newness of life, and God gives us his Holy Spirit and imparts to us his divine nature. We rejoice because we've been forgiven of our past sins, and we can walk in that newness of life, which is there in Romans 6, chapter, verse 4. You know, Romans 6 is the description of baptism, that we're buried into Christ's death. We come up out of the water. Uh, to walk in newness of life. But we must at all, sometimes in our lives, see the perversity of human nature and recognize it in our own life. Let's turn to Luke, the 18th chapter. We see a contrast here in the nature of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke, the 18th chapter. 
It illustrates the contrast between human pride and godly humility. Luke 18, verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Talk about narcissism. Who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Yes, that self-righteousness that we read in Isaiah 64. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Jesus goes, continues, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with, with himself. He was probably praying to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. In the King James, it's the word publican. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What a contrast. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now there's another telling aspect of this parable. The tax collector in the scripture here has it, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But in the original Greek, it's not the indefinite article a, it is the definite article T-H-E. God be merciful to me, the sinner. You know, on the baptizing tours in the past, we would ask people, well, what do you think about your past life. Oh, I've been good, some would say. Others would say, oh, I've, I've sinned just like everyone else. And so by adding just like everyone else, they're justifying themselves. But the tax collector did not do that. He didn't say, I'm just like a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner, just like everyone else's sin. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Have you ever had that attitude in your prayer like this individual did. We need to realize that if you or I were the only human being on the face of the earth, Jesus would still have to sacrifice his life for us. We need to realize that our sins are responsible for his death. Jesus voluntarily allowed himself to be murdered. We had an article years ago uh, in the Living Church News, Confession of a Murderer. That's the March-April 2008 Living Church News. I'll quote from that article. As another Passover approaches, I remind myself once more, I am personally guilty of murdering Jesus Christ, my elder brother, my Savior, and my God. If I had been the only human being on earth... Jesus would still have given his life to pay the penalty for my sins. By my sinful actions, I was in the mob shouting for Jesus' crucifixion. By my selfishness, I was the lictor who lashed his body to a bloody pulp. By my carnal desire to please myself and gain favor in the eyes of men, I was the soldier who drove the nails into his hands and feet. By my wretched human nature... I was the legionary who plunged a spear into my Savior's side. I cannot blame anyone else. 
Christ's death was my fault. I am a murderer, and the one I murdered is the one who is saving me by his death and resurrection. Did I consciously murder him? No. But that is no excuse. Like all my accomplices, others who have come to realize that they too murdered Jesus Christ, I can be eternally and tearfully grateful to God for the words Jesus Christ spoke as I crucified him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, verses 33 and 34. So you might say, I didn't kill Christ. Some even said that Jesus wouldn't allow himself to be murdered. Was he murdered? Let's take a look at a couple of scriptures. Turn to Acts, the fifth chapter, Acts 5. And uh, verse 30, here Peter is uh, on trial. He says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging him on a tree. Acts 5, verse 30. Then Acts 7, verse 52. Acts 7, verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So this was Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin. It was saying, you, you Sanhedrin, you are guilty of the death of the Messiah. And what did the Apostle Peter accuse his audience of on the day of Pentecost? Turn to Acts, the second chapter. Acts 2. He's telling about the resurrection of Christ in verse 32 and then verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He was talking to an audience of thousands out there. They hadn't been the ones that put the nails in his hands and feet. They weren't the ones who put the spear in his side. And yet, he said, you are guilty for crucifying the Lord, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Well, they didn't justify themselves. Oh, I had nothing to do with that. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were urgent. They were convicted. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all that are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. 3,000 were baptized that day in Pentecost because they were convicted by the Apostle Peter of crucifying the Messiah. Only one Roman soldier killed Jesus with a spear. But God inspired his servants to declare plainly that thousands of others were guilty of murder. 
Peter told the huge crowd at Pentecost, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Well, if you were there, would you have been cut to the heart? Would you have accepted Peter's pronouncement that all in the audience were guilty? Brethren, and those of you around the world who will hear this sermon later, have you ever accepted your guilt? The very command to repent and be baptized was Peter's instruction to those willing to admit their guilt. So as we approach the Passover, we need to remember Jesus' statement as he was being crucified, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What is the solution to human nature? Well, we've seen the tax collector say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. First of all, we need to acknowledge our guilt. We need to acknowledge that we, like the tax collector, are the sinner. We need to repent of our human nature. We need to repent of who and what we are as the sinner. We then accept Christ's shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. We submit to Christ as our Lord and Master and Savior and submit to him as our high priest. Then God gives us his nature through the Holy Spirit. He begets us with his spirit, and we become his begotten children. As we saw in Second Peter, the first chapter, then we are partakers of his divine nature. The Days of Unleavened Bread, which we'll be observing in a little over eight weeks from now, that will give us more strategies and keys to overcoming human nature. But one strategy is that of discipline. Turn to 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. There's that uh, old saying, that old song, being unpredictable, you know, I'm unpredictable, and so people are going to like me. You know, the girls will really like me because I do crazy things. No, God wants people who have submitted to the Ten Commandments and the way of God, the principles of God. The Apostle Paul realized that he had human nature. So he said, starting here in verse 24, 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body. We see a nation around us that at large, does not discipline its body. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So we need to discipline ourselves. Discipline is a part of successful parenting. Dr. Jeffrey Fall in his successful parenting booklet, Chapter 3, Consistency, the Path to Security, writes this, quote, Many parents never experience consistent discipline from their own parents 
but we all have experienced the pattern of our spiritual father who is totally consistent in dealing with us. We can see from Scripture that God gives blessings for obedience and corrects us when we disobey. Applying this principle in our parenting makes life much happier. Once a child receives understandable guidelines, any infraction results in discipline. The reality of cause and effect sets the pattern for life. Some do-gooders may not believe in any corporal punishment whatsoever, thinking that they have children's well-being at heart. But they fail to understand human nature and what is truly best for children. (coughs) Unconditional love and learned obedience with applied correction. He continues quoting Hebrews, the 12th chapter. God's word tells us, now no chastening, in brackets, discipline, seems joyful for the present, but grievous. Afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's the King James Version, Hebrews 12, verse 11. Dr. Fall continues, How peaceful it is when children have been taught obedience right from the start. Even young children can be a real joy to a family when they are taught the habit of obedience. Let's turn to 2 Timothy, the first chapter. 2 Timothy, the first chapter. As God wants us to replace human nature with divine nature. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 6. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And again, just a side comment, the laying on of hands is symbolic of God's government, which some of the churches of God do not understand and are not practicing. The laying on of hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The Greek word for sound mind can also be translated discipline. The NIV, for example, has, For the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. We have a sermon, number 349, The Gift of Discipline. So how else can we overcome human nature? We can do it with the power of God's Holy Spirit, recognizing all the works of the flesh and making sure we repudiate those works, counteract them with the power of God's Holy Spirit, and to ask God for that discipline to overcome. Another way of overcoming our human nature is through family love, love of the love towards one another in the body of Christ, the very church of God. This is the March-April. Some of you, we just got ours uh, last Sabbath, a week ago today. And this is the the, uh, March-April 2014 Living Church News. Dr. Meredith thanks everyone for the love and expressions of comfort and condolence that were sent to him after the death of his wife. And then he writes, Even so, having our entire church family respond so lovingly and thoughtfully was a wonderful encouragement. It helped me realize even more fully the depth of love and unity we have in the living church of God and helped me focus on how important it is that we continue to build the family spirit in the church. 
Even as I write this, we are sending relief to many of our dear brethren in the Philippines who recently experienced the wrath of Typhoon Haiyan, which struck a few weeks ago. Even now, we are finally getting fully organized a a disaster relief team that can quickly respond to such tragedies around the world. Even now, we have just started an outreach program in our headquarters congregation as a first step toward more actively reaching out to the sick, the elderly, and those in need in our communities, both people in God's church and outside of the church. For we instructed, we are instructed by God, quoting Galatians 6, verse 9 and 10, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And as Mr. McNair announced in the announcements, we will be doing an uh, outreach program at the Carrington Care Center. That's March 27th, is it? March 27th. So we're very thankful for the outreach and the love that people are showing in God's church. That's a way of overcoming human nature because you're practicing divine nature, godly nature in doing that. Let's turn to uh, Matthew, the 12th chapter. Matthew 12. Again, we are one family. We are the children of God. Matthew, the 12th chapter, shows that connection that we have with Christ. Matthew 12, verse 48. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak to him. Then one said to him, Look, Your mother and your brother are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. So Dr. Meredith after quoting that scripture, writes, So Jesus Christ himself feels deeply that there must be a genuine family spirit that we have all have toward one another in his true church. He tells us that we are his mother and his brothers. God himself, as revealed himself in the human flesh through Jesus, indicates that it is this attitude that we need toward one another in his true church. So let us respond. Yes, we need to serve, help, encourage, and care for one another. And we certainly see that being done here in the local congregation. In this transformation from human nature to divine nature, it is a continual process. Let's take a look at Romans, the 12th chapter. Romans 12. Have you thought of yourself as actually being transformed from human nature to divine nature? Romans, the 12th chapter, very common scripture to all of us. Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Let me turn back to 
Romans, back a few pages, Romans the 8th chapter. Yes, we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Transformed from human nature to divine nature. Romans 8 and verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. I won't tell you, I had a little experience the other day that uh, I think that was pretty negative, and I thought, oh, all things work together for good. And uh, actually it did turn out for good. To those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Yes, to the character, the nature, the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So we are being transformed. Now it's 2 Corinthians 3 and uh, verse 18. It says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. We're in the process of growing and changing into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Or as the NIV has it, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So it's overcoming daily by the Spirit's sword and in a process of being transformed, being conformed to the very image of Christ. That process, of course, is character development. As Mr. Armstrong wrote in this article, the plain truth about healing. Subhead, righteous character must be developed. But the very purpose of human life, which is... God reproducing himself is this holy and righteous character development, and it is acquired, developed, and increased primarily through obedience and faith. So it's character development, and that's another sermon. We've got several sermons on character development, but it's the process which replaces human nature with divine nature. You have the sermon Number 449 by Dr. Meredith, The Importance of Character. Number 664, Growing in Godly Character. Number 667, Character, Fulfill Your Calling. And one I mentioned earlier, number 720, Character and Your Emotions. Interjecting briefly here, Dr. Fall's comments in Successful Parenting. The same chapter, chapter 3. We must remember that children, since they have human nature, are attracted to disobedience like a magnet. And dis- disobedience must be dealt with consistently. On the other hand, obedience and doing what is right must be taught. Proper parenting is a huge dose of child training. Proverbs 22, verse 6 instructs us to train up a child in the way he should go when he is old, he will not depart from it. So he talks about this development of character, that is, Mr. Armstrong does. He talks about the initial stage. And this is an interesting concept, and 
he's really trying to draw, draw an analogy of that. And I wouldn't want you to quantify and say, well, how much of you is human nature and how much of you is divine nature? But Mr. Armstrong comments on that perspective in this article on righteous character must be developed, plain truth about healing. Mr. Armstrong writes, I don't know, for God does not reveal, what percentage of human nature is driven out and the divine nature given through the initial measure of the Holy Spirit at conversion. My wife and I were talking about this this morning. She felt I was just full full of God's Spirit when she was baptized, just joyful. I said, yes, the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. And, but that's the beginning of a whole lifetime of overcoming. In that lifetime, we face many trials and challenges, and we face them with faith. Sometimes we fail and have to repent. And sometimes we persevere, and God gives us the victory. Mr. Armstrong continues, But to illustrate, let us suppose one receives 1% of complete full measure of the Holy Spirit. Such a one might be, shall we suppose, 99% actuated by the selfish nature. Possibly that may vary in different individuals. Of course, Jesus was had the Spirit without measure. And I know we have to be careful. We don't quantify and try to analyze, well, I'm 50% spiritual and 50% human nature. We realize we've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.18. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You know, speaking to yourselves and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks unto God always for all things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's consistency in our overcoming daily with the spirit sword that is God's word. The world's false teaching is that now one is, quote, once saved, always saved. That's a truism once we're born into the kingdom of God, but it's not true now. God's plan of salvation teaches us that we must grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, 2 Peter 3, verse 18. And the telecast this weekend is God's Master Plan by Dr. Meredith. So hopefully you'll get to see that, that program. We anticipate the New Testament Passover on April 13, 2014, but we need to know the state of our human nature. We might take a look at one final example, the end of the book of Job. Most of you are familiar with his repentance just before the book of Psalms. Job was self-righteous, but he certainly depend, he certainly demonstrated his loyalty to God, and God commended him uh, for that part of it. He had to repent of his self-righteousness. But here at the end, we find uh, in Job 42, verse 5, Job says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job, of course, had to pray for his friends, and his friends were blessed, and Job was blessed with double that he had, as it brings out here in verses uh, 12 through the end of the chapter. So Job had repentance. He finally saw his raw and ugly human nature. 
We don't have time to go to the prodigal son in Luke 18. The prodigal is profligate. He spent all of his inheritance in the world. When he came back, he said, I'll I'll just be a servant to my father. And yet, when he came back, his father saw him, kissed him. He said, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. Let me work as one of your servants. He humbled himself. He was repentant. And his father forgave him, slaughtered the fatted calf, put a robe on him, and accepted him back. And as we prepare for the Passover eight weeks from tomorrow night, we need to think of these examples of the Apostle Paul, who said, O wretched man that I am. Job, who said, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. The prodigal son who humbled himself and came back. And the tax collector said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Do we acknowledge that we have human nature that is vanity, jealousy, lust, greed, and selfishness? Do we acknowledge that we have God's Holy Spirit to counter that nature and to overcome it and to replace it with God's nature? Mr. Armstrong said, we do not have world peace and we will not have world peace until human nature is changed. But there are people here on planet Earth where human nature is being changed, and for that we can rejoice. We can thank God for his plan of salvation. We know in Hebrews 4, I might just turn there, Hebrews, the fourth chapter, that we have a great high priest in the heavens, Jesus Christ the righteous. He was tempted at all points as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He knows what you're suffering, brethren. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, brethren, ask God to create you a clean heart, to renew a right spirit within you, to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Claim the promise of Second Peter 1 and verse 4, that God has given you the promise of being partakers of the divine nature. We are in the process of replacing human nature with God's divine nature. Brethren, continue to conquer and overcome your human nature. Thank God that through our Savior, our High Priest, we will continue to overcome Satan, self, and society. Thank God that you are now being conformed to the very image and nature and character of Christ. God is preparing us for his coming kingdom. He's preparing for a future resurrection to a spiritual family to be born into the to that kingdom as immortalized, glorified children who do not have human nature, but who have divine nature for all eternity.